Welcome to Veteran State of Mind. I am your host, Geraint Jones. Happy to be in your ears. Today, we have another fantastic guest. She has been much requested and for good reason. She's uh, absolutely awesome. I'm glad I can call her a friend. Um, she uh, She's one of those people who, she's so unassuming. She calls herself distinctly average. I disagree strongly. Uh, she's got a will of iron. She does a lot of stuff for other people and uh, I really appreciate her ha- having her as a friend and having her on the podcast. And speaking of podcasts, today wouldn't be happening without the Royal British Legion. You know who they are. You know why and who they are because they have been getting the business done with veterans and their families for a 100 years. They are, of course, the Royal British Legion. I am so thankful for them for making this podcast happen. You know why? Because I get messages every now and again. I get a message from one of the listeners saying that this podcast has helped them through a dark time. And that would not have happened without the Royal British Legion putting this podcast on the air. So thank you so much, Royal British Legion. There's all kinds of ways that they can be of assistance to you or maybe just to someone you know. What I recommend, guys, is go into their website, rbl.org.uk, um, and I'll link it up in the show notes so you can just click it and it'll take you straight through. See what the, the British Legion have going on because it might be in a few years' time you find yourself, maybe you're just trying to start a business up and you might be struggling to get uh, money from the banks because we don't like the banks. They're nasty and they steal all, all kinds of monies off you. So you might be in that position and, you know, you might not need it today, but you might need it tomorrow. Or you might be in a conversation with another veteran or a veteran family and find out that they need what the RBL offers. So check them out at rbl.org.uk and also at Royal British Legion on social media. And if you want to um, if you want to support the podcast directly, head over to vsomstore.com vsomstore.com again linked up in the show notes we have your alley merch needs on there we got t-shirts hoodies stickers all them kind of things um, for the old and bold and the young up-and-comers it's all on there vsomstore.com right today's guest uh, she's an absolute legend as i've already said she served in the american um, navy in the u.s navy on the medical side of things uh, she deployed to afghanistan she's uh, she put in a lot of years in the military she has an incredible amount of experience and she's been doing a lot of good since then as well since leaving the military so please give a warm welcome to my mate nikki selby nikki Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. You are welcome. Been meaning to do this for a while, but then um, when I was in the States, I kept on getting hungover and forgetting. Ah, it's just I just get I get so little done when I'm hungover. I haven't had I haven't had a drink for three months now. The podcast been going really well. I'm looking forward to uh, to ruining that soon when I get back on the alcohol. How's things going out there in Southern California? It's going well, although we are, I guess shutting down again they're shutting all the bars down again so have you been naughty <laughs> it's uh yeah it's just been interesting and governor newsom's telling you to stay in the house is he and wear masks everywhere uh, as what's your medical opinion on the masks then because you are you know you are a medical person of science so my opinion goes against a lot of others i guess but the thing is is that if you're going to say that everybody has to wear a mask you should have a standard and when there's no standard you have people wearing you know a little piece of cloth over their face or paper masks or whatever they can get their hands on to satisfy that visual 
requirement Mm. (laughs) and it really doesn't do anything. And if you look around and watch people wearing their masks, they're constantly touching their face. They're pulling it down to talk. You know, I highly doubt people are taking their cloth masks and throwing them in the washer when they get home. What they usually do is either take it off, put it in their car, they put it on their kitchen counter. So what do I think? I don't, I think it's useless. <laughs> so me wearing a pair of used underpants on my face isn't not doing anything. <laughs> I mean, it might be doing something for you, but <laughs> not, <laughs> not in the sense of protecting you from a virus. <laughs> <laughs> right. In that case, I'm going to keep on doing it just to be on the safe side. <laughs> no, I, I, I agree. Like I don't have a, like, um, my fingers in per se about like, you know, but it's, it's the implementation of it, isn't it? It's like, you know, it's like, it's the same with saying like people, people handling weapons and people handling weapons are two very different things depending on if you've had training or not and i just think of these medical procedures you just think like uh, there was a really good uh and do you ever watch scrubs the comedy show i i did a long time ago so so they had um they had like a sequence of scenes on there which was kind of like a clever one where they had a guy who had um he had like a cold and it they showed like a color on his hand and then he touched other things and he touched other things and he went into a patient's room who just recovered from like cancer, I think. And he touched her, hugged her to say goodbye and that passed on to her and then that finished her off, killed her. Um, yeah, not finished her off in that way for dirty listeners listening. Um, and um, I thought, and I was like, wow, that was, a, that was a really good kind of explanation about how things do get passed on. But like you said, you see, see people touching themselves, well, not touching themselves, but touching the faces in public. Um, hey, it's been a long lockdown. People want to touch themselves in public i'm not gonna hold it against them um tell us tell us a bit about your tell us a bit about your background then in the military um who you served with and then we'll go a bit into why you served okay so i joined the navy right out of high school and i joined as a corpsman and along the way i applied for search and rescue corpsman and this was back in the late 90s got accepted. I, at the time I was the only female in the community. Um, my personality tends to be, you know, just go for it and then figure it out when you get there. And I definitely (laughs) found how challenging it was and probably why there weren't many females in that community. But, um, (laughs) and you know, I, I, it is very physically demanding as it should be. Um, I wasn't the PT stud or the fitness guru or anything at the time and you know had my ass handed to me a few times but you know, put my head down and worked and got through it and qualified and it was one of the best jobs I ever had we did mountain rescue out in China Lake which is uh near kind of near Barstow um but it was great it was very challenging and awesome loved it from there, went on to uh, instruct at Rescue Summer School down in San Diego, which was another challenging assignment. Did that for about four years and then got picked up for a commissioning program to finish my nursing degree and get commissioned as a nurse in the Navy. I did that and spent the next 14 years as a nurse. I was with the Marines. I went to Afghanistan. I went to Haiti when that crisis happened. I was on a ship went back to the Middle East, um, and then finished off my career with the Marines and developing uh, training for in-route care, which is medevacs, essentially. All right. We got a lot to talk about. You might have to stay on the line longer than we planned. <laughs> First of all, search and rescue corpsman sounds really, really cool. So what, what, talk us through like what the kind of jobs that you're dealing with um, in, in, in that. 
So the search of it, so it's, it's helicopter. So I was an air crewman and we were there to do a point of injury rescue. So where I was at China Lake, we supported the base that was there, which is the weapons test squadron and, you know, anything or any mishaps that happened with them in the aircraft. And then we also supported the surrounding community because we were up there near the, um, the mountains and, you know, people hiking, getting lost or having accidents or whatever. Um, we could go out and, and rescue those guys and then drop them off at the hospital or sometimes it was body recovery. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, but no, it was mm. very, you know, it was very demanding physically. I was repel qualified, which I was terrified of heights. <laughs> and I actually didn't know that I was going to have to get repel qualified because when I was, when I applied for it, I was told that the medic stays up in the helicopter. Um, and this was, this is usually over water. And then the rescue swimmer, which is usually just a crewman goes down, gets the patient, brings them back up to you. And then you do the follow on care in the helicopter, but it's different when you're over mountains, the corpsman or the medic goes down for that, that patient. And so when I checked into my command, the first thing my senior corpsman said was, okay, we're sending you down to repel school at Pendleton. And I was like, what do you mean? (laughs) Well, that's part of the qualification. I was like, oh, no, 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 I don't do that. (laughs) And it was, you know, okay, well, you don't have to, and you can leave the job or you're going to go and, you know, continue on with your training. So I did, went down to Pendleton. The first time you go down a tower, and I think I, shook that tower with my legs <laughs> the, the guy below me was getting pissed at me because i was just i was at the top and i didn't want to go down and he started yelling at me like you gonna come down so finally did that it was great then we went in the helicopter and you know it was just one of those things i just needed to do it and get it out of my system and then i actually loved it after that what kind of what kind of um uh, aircraft were you using I was in Huey's, the UH-1 November, Ooh, which is the old Huey's that actually you can hear them, right? Because it was only the two rotor blades. Um, nowadays, the Hueys have four and they don't sound like they used to sound, like what you think of in like the Vietnam areas. Um, mm. But yes, I was in the, the older Hueys. Yeah, they're awesome. They're the, they're the sexiest helicopter that ever did live. So we've got, um, that's a pretty Billy, Billy Badass job, search and rescue corpsman. What were you like as a kid growing up? Because, um, you know, you mentioned that you were, you know, your legs are kind of shaking going out the repelling tower, but there must have been something uh, like the, an element about you that was seeking some kind of adventure. What, what was your childhood like? I, I was never very adventurous. It took me until I was 16 to even get on a roller coaster. And my cousin made me go on Space Mountain Whoa. at Disneyland and I was terrified. <laughs> so, <laughs> that's my normal personality. Um, yeah, I, I was never that one to seek out adventure. I was pretty shy and reserved and, you know, just kind of went with the flow and, yeah, just never never felt the need to, to do crazy things. I don't know what happened to me in my adult life, but <laughs> I, think, I think I'm catching up for all of that. I don't know, but, yeah, I was not that super adventurous person. I was really independent, though, I you know, joined the Navy without really talking to my family about it. <laughs> Came home one day and put the little piece of paper on a dining room table. And my dad was working swing shifts. So he didn't get home till 2 a.m. or something. And so he came home to that. I thought it was like, oh, here you go, dad. I joined the Navy, by the way. So I woke up to kind of a shit show. <laughs> he was just like, he's like, what are you doing? 
Like, what, what was the reaction to that? He had said, when I'm 18, you're out. So I have an older brother who said the same thing to him. Who, my older brother joined the Navy as well. And so I kind of screwed up in high school and didn't really set myself up for college or anything like that. So I didn't really know what else to do, I guess. And I, I believed him when he said, when you're 18, you're done. So I went down to the recruiter and joined the Navy. <laughs> so I, I know you skateboard and stuff. Was that something that you did as a, as a kid? <laughs> You just picked that up now, have you? And I don't do it very well now. <laughs> you do it better than me. I know those little stupid pebble rocks that nobody talks about. It they try to kill you. <laughs> it stops your wheels. Like I mean, you could be going. You know, I I gain some confidence and pick up some speed, and then those stupid little pebbles will stop your wheels. And I've gone flying off that thing. I don't know how many times. And I'm sure my neighbors think I'm the crazy woman. I think I think you're a crazy woman for being on there. Yeah, like those things are fucking. Those things are nuts. There's cars. Get in a car. They are. <laughs> yeah, it's crazy, but they're fun. So <laughs> I'm trying. <laughs> I've seen too many people coming off those things. Like, cause uh, when you know when I stay in San Clemente, like the the balcony look, looks over a hill, and they all go down there towards the the pier area. And I've seen so many people like eat shit that I'm like, that just doesn't look like fun. No, it's it's not, but. I keep doing it. And let me let me throw in a plug too for um Raid Skateboards who that's where I get my skateboards from. It's a small, um, better known business. But yeah, they got the greatest skateboards. Right, I'll invoice them for the plug later. <laughs> now that's 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 cool though. Dude. But like what I'm really interested in knowing though, where you kind of got this like this streak of doing stuff that made you uncomfortable. Was you know, is it is it like um did you feel like you had something to prove to yourself or something you had to prove to other people? Where, where did this come from, this kind of thing of like doing stuff that made you like, oh, I'm not really into this, but I'm going to do it anyway? <laughs> That's like the story of my adult life. Um, I don't know. I just, I don't like being told no, first of all. And when I applied for the search and rescue position, my senior corpsman, who was also the career counselor, said, you can't do that. Females don't do this. And I was like, well, why don't, why don't they do that? I, I just, at the time, I was really fascinated with helicopters and flying. And so that was kind of my way as a corpsman to try to break into that community. And so when she said that, I was like, I don't understand why I wouldn't be able to because it's not a combat position, it's search and rescue. And I always tell people at that moment, I could have just accepted her answer because I was junior and she was senior and that was her job to know. But I asked her to look at the instruction and show me where it said no females allowed. And so she's mm. like, all right. So she goes back, does that, comes back and says, well, it doesn't say you can't apply. So I guess you can apply. So again, you know, not really thinking it through, <laughs> I went ahead and applied and got accepted. And that was probably one of the biggest challenges of my life, not only physically, but also breaking into that male community that didn't want me there <laughs> that and I, I never thought about those things I just thought you know oh this is a job it's available I'm going to apply try it out and never thought that people didn't actually want me there because I was a female so I want so before we go on I just really want to emphasize that point because we get like a lot of people listening that are either going to join the military or are junior in the military right now and I want to emphasize what you said there which is basically don't take no for an answer from someone because most of the day they're just going off the top of their head. They're just like, oh, you can't do that. Exactly. Yeah, you can't do that. That's fucking bullshit. Oh, you can't. 
Like, you know, you, there, there's positions that you can transfer to, you can transfer to other cores, you can take courses, there's all these things open to you, but they're going to give you the answer most of the time that requires them doing the least amount of work. So do what Nikki did and be like, well, show me. Now, that may end up, you may end up with some extra guard duties because of this. <laughs> um, I'll tell you from, I'll tell, I'll tell you that the show me, the show me attitude does not go down so well in the infantry. Um, you might just get shown a fucking back of someone's hand instead, but yeah. <laughs> it's a great, it's a, it's a really great, it's a really great point though. Don't, ex- and that, and that goes for civilian life too. Don't expect other people to have the answers for you. Seek them out yourselves and make people, make people show you. And you might not be everybody's best friend, um, you know, but these people, these people, you're not trying, like these people are there, they're there trying to coast a lot of the time. So don't expect them to do the legwork for you. Do it yourself. I think that's really important to take away. So thanks for that. So yeah, what, what was it like then? This, this, this breaking into a male um, in, environment then? What's, what was, what was that like? Well, I had, um, it, I found that the guys either loved me or they hated me. There wasn't a lot of in between. And my first command, I worked with two gentlemen. One took me under his wing and we got along great. We get along great to this day. He's like a brother to me. The other one was pretty much, I don't want you in this community. <laughs> I'm going to figure out how to get you out of here. Mm. And so he kind of made the training and the qualification process probably more difficult than it should have been. But again, it's, I was, I'm always up for a challenge and, um, he made my check ride really difficult, but I did it. And the other guy was like, Oh, this is bullshit. And I was like, no, no, let me do this. Because, you know, the thing is, and it's kind of unfortunate, but it's, it's just human factors is that when you're a female and you're trying to break into an all male world, you do have to be better. I mean, you have to, prove yourself and you have to prove yourself through action and that's the that's the difference is i think mm-hmm. a lot of people want to complain and bitch and moan or whatever and you know my thing is put your head down do the work and yeah you might have to prove that you know you're you're better or you know be stronger be more yeah. skilled and that is you know how i got accepted into that world but i did have an incident when i first checked in my officer in charge sat me down and said, I don't believe females should be out there. I'm not going to let you go train. So I had to fight through that initially. Mm. <laughs> so yeah, it was very challenging. But you know what? Again, what you're saying there is a great point for anyone to listen to. It's like if you want to go into something and nobody else, and this could be color, uh, age, gender, um, nationality, you know, changing trades, it's on you to prove to the other person that you can do it. Now, would it be great to live in a perfect world? Yeah, of course it would. We don't, you know. If you want to, if you want to do, if you want to, if you don't want to do. So, if there's someone listening now and you want to start business, I tell you what. As a good example, actually, is quite often we get people saying, "Oh, my parents don't believe in me doing this." My parents say, "You know, they're like, oh, well, can't you take a safe job or can't you take a comfortable job?" Oh, they don't believe in me. What's because you haven't fucking proved anything to them? You, like if they still see you as someone that just shits diapers you know it's like you've got to, you've got to prove to people that you can do it and like Nikki's saying you got to do it better than people expect as well and then once you've done that you'll get your acceptance I mean that's in, in, in that world again that's how you prove yourself and like you're saying yeah in a perfect world everybody would just accept you and that's it and whatever um, but you know you have the human factors that play into everything and it's just until it's more common, then, you know, that mentality is going to be there that, you know, you're going to, you're going to have to work hard. And it was 
definitely hard work. I mean, I I studied all night long because I had, you know, the guy that didn't really want me there would embarrass me in our, our training meetings. And so I was like, all right, enough of this. And so instead of complaining and, and bitching about it, and was it unfair? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, he definitely pointed me out on purpose, but you know, I went, cut my head to the grind and like opened the books, started studying all the things about the aircraft. And, you know, pretty soon he's calling me out and I'm answering the questions and I count, I would counter him and ask him questions that he didn't know. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) Motherfucker. The thing is about the military as well is like, look, the military exists because we live in an unfair world. If we lived in a fair world, we wouldn't need the military because everyone would get along and treat each other well. So, you know, it's an organization dedicated to the fact that the world isn't a fair place. So don't expect the military to be fair either. Yeah. Um, you know, it's just, it's just, you're just setting yourself up for failure if you expect that, right? Yes, exactly. I mean, I'm a realist, you know, and again, it's like, yeah, it'd be great if we lived in a world that was everybody got along and peace, love and what happiness, whatever, but that's not reality. And, you know, the world isn't going to be fair to you when you're out there and, and doing something like search and rescue, you know, you better be able to do that physically, mentally, everything else. You've got someone else's lives in your hands. So, you know, it's not about you. It's about, can you do that job to that standard? And what was it like when you went to your first kind of like, is it like, what would you call it? A team, a squadron? So the first, that, that first squadron was two guys. Um, cause I had to do my qualification process there and, uh, yeah, it, it was definitely, I mean, just starting with the officer in charge of that, because we were attached to the branch medical clinic there and he would farm us out to the squadrons. And that guy was like, you know, I'm not going to let you go train because I don't think females should do it, blah, blah, blah. And again, this is back in the 90s. So we didn't really have the equal opportunity officers and people that you can really go to. So I had to make some phone calls to people I my senior enlisted that I knew at my last command and, and my master chief helped me out with that, which then kind of pissed off my officer in charge because it came down from, you know, DC or wherever that I had, to, that he had to let me go train. And so then he made it more difficult by making me work in the clinic as well, stand duty as an EMT and try to train at the same time when the other two guys didn't have to do any of that. <laughs> so. so an EMT just for British listeners, can you explain what oh, an EMT emergency is? emergency medicine technician. So at the time the, the Navy, we were, the corpsmen were covering uh, the, the 911 calls, so to speak, on base. Um, nowadays it's the, the federal fire guys that are on base, but at the time we did it. So we would have someone on call 24 hours a day. So on top of having the job in the clinic, um, I had to stand duty and still try to train, which was, you know, a six month to a year process. So it, it was a lot more than anybody else had to do <laughs> in that position. But again, it was like, all right, up for the challenge. <laughs> I'll figure this out. So. Why, why do you think he was doing it? Why, why was he doing it? Do you think like, what? obviously like he was, had something out for you, but like, what were the reasons behind that? Do you think? Well, I mean, he said, he's like, I don't think females should do this job. But for what did, did they ever give any reason why? He just, cause it's physically demanding and he just, I don't know, I guess that old school mentality of it's a man's job. So, I mean, he was plain blank about it. And so, um, then he got pissed when I made phone calls <laughs> and, <laughs> which is like, what else am I supposed to do? I'm here to do this job. Like, I don't know what else I'm supposed to do. And so 
um, that's when he may need you. I'll be extras. Because I find it kind of funny, like, all right, I don't think women can do this job because they're not physically capable. It's like, well, I've just shown you I'm physically capable. Do you know what I mean? It's like, because yeah. I, I can understand, say, you know, one of the things that I've had an issue with in the British Army was when they lowered stand, like, they were like, right, well, um, this is the standard the man needs to pass. This is the standard the woman needs to pass. And there's different standards. I'm like, well, hang on, that doesn't make sense. Right. But if everyone can pass the same standard, everyone can pass the same fucking standard. Yeah. And so, I mean, the Navy's the same way. We have in the general population, you have the male and female standards um, for things like search and rescue or other type of special communities. There's one standard. And that's that's kind of been the argument lately, especially uh, with in the news. I think there was the first female green beret that just qualified mm-hmm. um you know people saying oh well they lowered the standard for her i i don't know if that's true or not but um there still is one standard that you have to pass and for search and rescue i mean it's it's for a purpose right because it's not about you or the title it's about can you do the job and can you save a 200 pound plus man <laughs> you know drag him along or mm. put him into a litter put him in a helicopter that type of thing so it, it's physically demanding you can't change that so you have to pass those same mm. standards can you remember what your first call out was your first job as a search and rescue corpsman when i was up there we didn't actually deal a lot so there was we had three stations in that area which was lamore china lake and fallon and anytime there was a call out everybody ran to their helicopters to try to be the first one there um, so the only thing I got, I think we did a body recovery and then, uh, I can't remember. I think we had a down pilot. That's pretty heavy for, pretty heavy for your first job. Yeah. I mean, it's, you know, it's a lot of mental that things that go into it when, especially if you've never seen a dead body before. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very demanding. And, um, I still feel to this day that the medical training is lacking in that department for us, but. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't feel completely prepared <laughs> to do that job. Right. So, but yeah, we didn't have a lot. We trained every day, but, um, didn't have a lot at the time. Um, and where did you, uh, where, where was the next step for then? And what was the decision behind it? So the next thing I went to, uh, rescue swimmer school down in San Diego. Um, every ship in the Navy has to have two qualified rescue swimmers and, the curriculum is a lot like, I guess, to put it into perspective, if you've ever seen the movie The Guardian. Kevin mm-hmm. Costner, yo! <laughs> so, uh, similar curriculum. Um, again, very physically demanding. Again, I was the only female. <laughs> <laughs> getting my ass handed to me the whole time. Um, lots of swimming, lots of running, lots of calisthenics. And that was pretty much when I, because I had to qualify. So I went through the school myself and before I became an instructor. And yeah, that was. That was very demanding. I don't think I could walk for like, <laughs> I mean, every day it was just you know, dragging myself into my house, trying to get into my bathtub and <laughs> get my muscles to, you know, repair themselves somehow. But it was good. I mean, again, love the challenge. So, and it, this was all, again, I wasn't very, I, I wasn't a big confident child or, you know, throughout my childhood, I wasn't very confident in myself and my abilities. So doing all of these things, Mm. you know it was just every day it was it was making me stronger and more confident and 
showing myself that, yeah, I can do this, you know? And, and I tell everybody, if I can do it, <laughs> I swear anybody else can do it because I am very average <laughs> as physically, you know, intelligence wise, I'm, I'm pretty average. I'm not, I don't consider myself above average in any of those areas. So if I can figure it out and get through it, anybody can do it. What was your motivation not to quit? when you were doing all this, when you were waddling into your house and collapsing in the bathtub, you know, what was, what was it in, in your head that was telling you not to quit? I, so, I mean, trust me every morning. I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> Why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much my whole career is, is like that. <laughs> what are you doing? Uh, I don't know. I guess it's, you know, that, that ego component of, I'm not going to show them that they got to me. I don't know. Um, when, and also I was, you know, becoming an instructor at that school. So I didn't want to let down my, my other instructors. I didn't want it. I just, I don't know. I guess I couldn't live with that. Oh, she failed, you know, she can't be an instructor yeah. or whatever. So. so it's like a shame, like a good old, good old bit of shame motivation. A little bit. Yeah. I mean, you know, you do have that peer pressure a little bit and and it's, I was yeah. the only female. There are all these guys and, you know, you're trying to blaze a trail. So you don't want to, <laughs> you don't want to fail. I mean, yeah. It kind of, you know, in a way, I guess it would prove to the guys, like, see, she couldn't do it. So I didn't want to be that person. So you were, you were very aware of that then. You were very aware that you were kind of carrying other people's, you know, you're carrying other people's kind of like hopes on, on your shoulders as well as your own. Yeah. I think if you're, you're doing anything like that, if you're the only female or you're the only whatever and whatever community you're going into, you do carry that a little bit and you do have a spotlight on you and, there's a little bit of pressure involved with that, but if you choose to do that, you're you're taking that with you. I mean, that's just a given. Because again, it's that human factors that go with it. And then every every time you're you're getting one of these, um, you know, one of these courses, one of these challenges, is it just like are, are you getting a kind of like a, an unquenchable thirst then for for more of these experiences? So I'm really starting to think that because <laughs> I seem to be constantly looking for that next challenge. Um, yeah, I think once you achieve something and something that you really didn't think was possible, you, you grow, you become more confident and you have a little bit of that. I, I mean, I don't know if it's an addiction, but it kind of feels that way, I guess, where you're just, you're looking for that next adrenaline push or, or whatever it is. But yeah, I mean, I think there is something to that when you accomplish things, you know, it's like, okay, what's next? <laughs> yeah, I mean, that that what's next thing is, uh, I don't know if you ever heard the guy called Tim Grover. He was like uh, Kobe and um, Michael Michael Jordan, Kobe, D-Wade's um, trainer. And um, his kind of thing is, is just basically like, you know, like uh, people who are top of their field, which, you know, you are, is it's like you get there by having the mentality of, okay, what next? Like every time you have a success, you know, you see someone like Tom Brady when they win the Super Bowl, he's already thinking about the next one, already talking about the next one. So it's that kind of thing, right? I think so. And, you know, I am getting to that age where I'm like, why can't I just relax? Like, this is just getting ridiculous mm. because, you know, I retired last year and I still feel like I just have so much on my plate and, and I do it to myself. Absolutely. And then every day I'm like, why can't I just I like, stop doing this? <laughs> so that's the, the conversation I'm having with myself daily. You said this to me five months ago when I saw you. <laughs> yeah, I 
This is exactly what you said to me five months ago. It's like you're like, why can't I stop picking up things? <laughs> and here we are. Actually, it's like yeah, six months, six months later. Yeah. I, I know exactly. I, I know exactly what you mean, though. I know. I know. I know exactly what you mean in the same way. It's like you'll finish what well, finish stuff for the day, and you like put it put it down. And you're like you put the pen down. And you're like ah, right. What have I got? So I took it. I took a day off the other day, and about ten minutes into my day off, I was like, ah, oh, fuck this. I'm working. <laughs> Because what do you do on a day off? I have no idea. Yeah. It's, you know, and someone asked me the other day, when, when was your last vacation? I was like, uh, probably a decade ago. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't know. It's like when you're trying to relax, your mind, or my mind anyway, is just off into the 50 different things that I'm involved in. And I just can't. It's really hard to shut off my, my brain. Well, I want to come back into some of those other things that you're involved in later. But like, let's talk about talk about your time in the Marines then and um, with, um, you know, Af- your time out in Afghanistan. So I ended up deploying, you know, with the Navy. So just a little background if people don't know. The Marine Corps does not have their own medical. So the Navy is their medical. And so we call it you know, blue side Navy is kind of like that traditional Navy, the ships, hospital, and then green side is with the Marine Corps. And so when you're assigned to the Marines, you, you know, you put on their MARPATs, you deploy with them, you train with them. And so I ended up getting deployed to Afghanistan with a, uh, we call it medical battalion, which is supporting the Marine Corps. And we were part of a damage control resuscitation surgery unit that the purpose of us is to try to set up near where heavy operations might be um, or where they expect a lot of casualties. And we can pop up a OR resuscitation tent within an hour. That's the concept of it. And so we're pretty mobile. Um, we take in the casualties. We're called a role two in the, the different roles of care within the theater Role one being that point of injury, and then role two is us, where we can do that damage control surgery or the resuscitation. And the point is, is that we are trying to stop the bleeding because most of these guys in trauma, where, what do they die of? They die of hemorrhaging. So if they can't stop it through tourniquets and whatever else they have, we can go in surgically, try to find out, you know, where the internal bleeding is or whatever, clean it up. We're not trying to fix the person there. We're just trying to to stabilize them. And then we put them on a helicopter and then we transfer them to the role three, which are the bigger hospitals within theater. So Kandahar, um, Bastion at the time is where I was operating out of, um, which was Helmand province. <clears throat> so I was part of this damage control surgical team. We moved around a little bit through Helmand. And then I also did the helicopter transfer from our role two to the role three. And the reason is, is because at the time, the dust off medics, who was the main component of medevacs within theater at that time, the paramedics didn't have the critical care training that is required to transfer these patients. Because what happens is once we do surgery on them, they come out on a ventilator, they're, you know, getting blood, they're getting drips, we're doing sedation, paralytics, that type of thing. And at the time, they do now have the training, but at the time, the paramedics didn't have that that skill set. So what would happen is, oh, hey, nurse, get on the back of the helicopter and transfer this patient. But it doesn't quite work that way. <laughs> you really need a lot of training to do stuff like that. And at the time, the military just, you know, they looked at you as nurse. You should be able to do everything. So um, 
I was doing that primarily after our surgeries. And luckily, I had the background in helicopters. So I understood that part, but I was very new in critical care medicine. So it was terrifying. I mean, I'd be the only person still resuscitating this patient on the back of a helicopter. And I didn't have the gear because I wasn't part of the air crew. So I didn't have a headset. I didn't have any way to communicate with the team. Mm. Um, so yeah, it was, it was very, another challenge yeah. <laughs> that when they asked like, Oh, who wants to fly? I was like, Oh, sure. I'll do it. <laughs> and I remember the first flight was again, what the hell am I doing here? <laughs> How did I get to this point in my life? So, but you know, accomplishing it and, my patients were all alive when I delivered them. You know, it's another component of building that confidence and mm. making the person or becoming the person I am today. So, so what, what kind of injuries were you seeing? So mostly a lot of amputations, a lot of uh, injuries throughout the core. So a lot of these guys are really weighted down with their gear and they would step on an IED and the instead of being, you know, blown to one side or the other, maybe just affecting one side of the body, it would just go right through the core. So a lot of times both legs would be gone or mangled, and then it would go up through their genital area and through their abdomen, thorax, that type of thing. So pretty devastating injuries. And there was one point when I was at Bastion helping out in the OR, um, I was there when 3-5 took over singing. I was like, I remember telling myself if one more of these kids, I call them kids, you know, 20 year olds, whatever, come in without their fucking mm. dick, I'm going to lose my shit. Because <laughs> it was just pretty devastating. Yeah, I mean, fuck, that's like, that's the first thing you check as a dude um, when you get blown up. <sighs> oh, yeah. <laughs> well, there were two guys that came in at one point, and the other guy was conscious, the other, that the second one was not. and. The other guy was like, "Has his dick okay? Is his dick there?" <laughs> he was <laughs> concerned for his friend's dick. So. <laughs> well, that's that, that's that's a sign of a true friend when you're checking on each other's dinglings. Yeah. Um. So yeah, exactly. <laughs> I, I just want to make sure I got this straight. How this works then, right? So you'd have, um, you'd set up at somewhere like Fob Edinburgh. You know, so not quite like a, not quite in a, in the, like in a town or something. So just out on one of these fobs outside of a town. And then they'd, you'd have a helicopter, pick them up, drop them off to you. You guys would do the work. And then the helicopter would then take them to the, um, the main, the hospital at Bastion. Right. Okay. That's interesting. So obviously for British listeners listening and guys that have been deployed to Helmand, we had the Mert, which would come in and you go on the Mert and then the Mert would just go straight to Bastion. But so, but what you're what you're kind of saying is that there there wasn't that capability on these. Um, like, what were, was it? Were these Pedros that you were to deal were dealing with? So, uh, Dustoff was operating the most in that area. We did have Pedro, and we had Mert. But like you're saying, Mert would usually just pick them up from pain and injury and take them straight to the roll three. But that's because Mert had you. You guys had a lot of capability. You had a physician. You had, I think, anesthesia. Um, you had your own security, so you could do that that point of injury. You know, you had your security in case it was hot. And then once they got into the helicopter with your guys, I mean, they were immediately starting the resuscitation process in the helicopter. So the capability that Mert had, we had on the ground. But our, our hmm. dust-off and our Pedro didn't have that critical care capability in flight. Does 
that makes sense. Yeah, so what's dust off? Is dust off literally just throw him in the back of the chopper? Dust off has, so now the paramedics are getting critical care uh, trained, but it's a paramedic. Whereas MERT, you have physicians, you have actual physicians, you have um, paramedics, Mm. you have anesthesia, you have people who can start the resuscitation process with blood. So at the time, like dust off wasn't carrying blood, they weren't carrying any of that stuff. So yeah, essentially it was, you know, tourniquets, airway, their airway, you know, really good at handling airway, managing the airway. But they didn't have a whole lot else to resuscitate. So they would bring them to us if we were closer than the rural three. And we would start that resuscitation process because we had the blood or we had surgeons or whatever else. So is it fair to say then that the kind of the command, if you will, had missed a, a there was a bit of a kind of like a, a blind spot in the uh, casualty evacuation process? When it comes to Navy Marine Corps, absolutely. <laughs> and that's if you ever look at my posts right. on Instagram, I talk a lot about that, that, that capability gap. Uh, the problem with us is that we don't have dedicated medevac services. So dust off for the Army, our dedicated medevac. The Navy, the Marine Corps, we use a list of opportunities. So although we'll have a medical provider of some sort, we don't have vehicles that are dedicated to us. So we'll have to use, beg, borrow, steal, whatever is available for us. Um, One of the gaps was, you know, they came up with that concept of the Rule 2 and the damage control surgery teams, you know, to be in these areas that were close by the fighting, which is great. And it, and, you know, saved a lot of lives, but they did forget that component of flying them back to the higher level of care and, and that that patient is now critical and the paramedics at the time didn't have that training. So that's why one of the nurses that was with the ground team would have to get on the helicopter and fly them back, which then degrades that ground team's capability because now you've taken that critical care nurse and, you know, I would fly to wherever I was going. And because I wasn't part of the dust off crew, they would leave me half the time. So you're at your own devices to figure out how to get back to your unit, which pizza. Hut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. So then your unit is degraded because now you're missing for however long. Sometimes I know in Iraq, they were missing for days at a time because that was a larger area of operation. Oh yeah. They would, they would, you know, dust off would drop them off. You go in to give their report to the trauma team and then they fly away. The first time I did it, I even asked the guy, can you please wait for me and take me back to my unit? And he was like, oh yeah, sure. I go in with the patient, go to give the report, and then you hear the helicopter fly away. And the surgeon was like, was that your ride? I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah it was. Um, and presumably, you might have like a few, you might have like a few nurses left at the same time, right? Because if you've got like multiple casualties coming in at different times, you know, you could lose a few nurses. Uh, you could, well, but we only had, we would only travel, like the surgical team would only have one nurse. And then you had the resuscitation team oh. that had maybe one or two other nurses. But that was it. We were a very small unit. That was, again, our purpose there was just to resuscitate, you know, with blood or surgery or whatever we needed to do to stabilize the patient. So we were a small mobile team that was traveling around that area. So so then you were just try, like, what, just trying to like convince somebody to fly you to this patrol base and drop you back off oh yeah so like that time i had it i you know and i have all my gear with me so i'm dragging all my gear to figure out where the aircraft are and i would get there and you know 
are any aircraft at the time that one I was at combat outpost pain, which is down near Pakistan. Um, you know, and, I was, and that was as small as a combat outpost. So not a lot was going in and out of there. And at this point, I want to say it was like nine o'clock at night, 10 o'clock at night. And so I asked the, the guy, you know, is anything going down there? And he's like, Nope, just sit out there and wait. And it's winter and winter in Afghanistan is pretty cold. Mm-hmm. Um, and I didn't really prepare for that. So I'm sitting there in just my uniform, no jacket, no anything else. <laughs> I'm shaking. I think finally at like two in the morning, you're like, oh, we got a supply aircraft going down there. So hopped on that thing and made it back down. But yeah, I mean, you have no way to like communicate with your unit. You don't have cell phones or anything like that. So it was, well, at the time I didn't. I don't know if they do know. But well, hopefully they realize I'm not dead somewhere. <laughs> Yeah. So you you saw you saw this as something that needed to be fixed then. Yes, a lot of things needed to be fixed. So I made it my mission when I came back that yeah, well. this, one, you know, the training is lacking because I I feel like a lot of times I got lucky. Um, I did not have the training, the critical care training that I needed. I, you know, thankfully was familiar with helicopters, but. I was thinking about a lot of these other nurses who never had that helicopter training and they're getting thrown on the back of these birds. I mean, that's, that's terrifying. Mm. And so, um, I was like, this isn't right. We should not be doing this to our people, our nurses and our corpsmen medics, just throwing them into the mix and just, you know, figure it out. That's, that's a disservice to them. It's a disservice to the patient, obviously. And I feel a lot of people, a lot of nurses came back and were like, F this, I'm done. I'm not doing this again because, not because of the environment they were in, but because they were not prepared adequately. And how did you go about that? So I, my last command, I was stationed with the Marines again at the medical battalion. And I had a great CEO who was very, who understood the capability gap of the in-route care process. And so he told me, you know, do what you got to do, qualify, these, not qualify these people because I didn't have a standard, like I didn't have my own curriculum, but, you know, train these guys up, do what you need to do to, to prepare them for deployments. And so I came up with a training program, which some of the higher ups weren't crazy about because they thought I was just creating a curriculum and qualifying people. And it's like, no, I'm not doing that because we did have a school in Alabama, a joint, mm. it's called Joint and Route Care Course. Um for that official qualification piece. But the problem was, is it's a joint school. So that means Army, Air Force, Navy, we're all going there. They had limited seats, um, cost money to send people over there that the local command had to absorb. And so it was just a challenge to get everyone that you needed qualified, qualified through that school. So we still had deployments and we still had this mission. So I started training people the way I thought that, you know, they needed to be trained just through my experiences and, and research and knowing what they were going to get into when they got over there. So I did get some phone calls, you know, kind of like, what the F are you doing? There's a school. And so I had to explain that, you know, these higher ups should have known this, but they didn't and explain to them that, you know, we, it is impossible to get everybody that we need qualified through that school. So my choices are send them unprepared or train them to my, the best of my ability. And they agreed with me that they still needed some kind of training. So they let me continue. What was that like, that experience of knowing that something could be the life of death of someone and having people tell you that basically like, oh, this doesn't fit in with our fucking curricula. Do you know what I mean? That kind of like 
red tape attitude and you know you're dealing with people's lives, how do you keep a lid on um, on not punching someone in the fucking face? <laughs> so, I mean, that, yeah, it's difficult. And, but I found that if you go into attack mode, you know, people shut down and they don't listen to you anymore. So it doesn't, mm. you know, it's not a conversation anymore. So I've always said, if you're going to challenge the system, you're going to challenge these higher ups, you know, have a sound argument. And my argument with in that particular instance was, okay, would you like me to send these people unprepared? And that's always, you mm-hmm. know, nobody's going to say, yes, send mm-hmm. them unprepared, right? <laughs> and when I'm telling them, <laughs> and I knew that, I knew like there's no argument against that, right? No. So my argument was, you know, they couldn't challenge that. And, and I had done everything that I was supposed to do up to that point, which was try to get them in school and, you know, have them apply to it the whole bit. And I had proof to show that we couldn't get, at the time I needed 30 qualified in route care providers. We, there was no way I was going to get that, you know, with that, if, if I sent them to that school, because the school only ran classes, I think it was four times a year. Again, there, you're competing with other services. There weren't enough seats for us. I did my part in attempting to do that. And I did send the people that we could send. But, you know, the other part of it, again, is we still have these deployments. So the two choices were turn down the deployments, which nobody's going to do, or send Mm -hmm. them unprepared. And she was just like, well, okay, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah. So to kind of like distill that in a point, it's like, so basically, do your homework, know what you're talking about. Yes offer solutions about how to get by it and then put the question to them so that they're the ones that then have to make the that kind of thing of like you know yeah unprepared or not you know it's it's um yeah that's that's a great way of doing it like you said if you go into attack mode people shut down i always think of veganism and stuff is a great example of this i always used to have my back up against it because people always used to go into attack mode to buy it. And then right. when my friend Paul just started being like, well, do you want kids in Africa stuff? I'd be like, oh, well, no, I don't want that. And he'd be like, well, this is why this relates to that. And then you're like, oh, but then I still eat meat. So I guess I'm just a twat. But, um, <laughs> but like, but yeah, but, but that's, that, that's a great, that's really a great way of, um, of thinking about those is, is giving that. But also like, it's like, it's like earlier, you know, you were saying about if you want people to give you, like, if you want people to take you seriously about something, you've got to do better than everyone else. Right. And it's the same kind of thing as if you want to change the system. It's like, you not you not only need to do something better than the system, you need to do the work yourself and then and then let the other person then kind of, like, make that decision exactly. and do the proof, of, the proof of concept. Why did you decide to leave the military? Why did you leave the military? When did you leave the military? So I did 23 and a half years. Wow. And... At the time, I was up for another promotion. Where I was in my career, um, my CEO, the the system kind of wanted me to go towards that DC direction, and I what's what's a DC direction? Sorry, Washington DC. So like you know, doing like a staff job or um, working with policy and stuff, which is you know probably where I should have went, but. I just couldn't do it. <laughs> I'm not a politician. I don't like those people and going there as at the time, Oh four, you know, you're, you're kind of a scum on the bottom of their shoe. And mm. I just felt also if I stayed in at that time, I was going to be, I was going to be there till 30. And 
it was that decision of, okay, I'm still young enough to do the fun things that I want to do. If I stay another six years, you know, who knows where I'll be or my body will be at that time and what I, what I'll be able to do physically. So, cause a lot of the things I'm interested in are physical. So, um, I just made the decision to, to get out at that point and start doing the things that I've always wanted to do and couldn't while you're in the military, such as volunteering for overseas organizations and, and things like that. So, um, yeah, it was just, it was that crossroads that, you know, I either keep going and keep going till the end or get out now and, and try to do some other things while I'm still. And what were some of those other things? Um, so one of the things that I did was that the global surgical medical support group, um, which I had been talking to and, um, you know, the president of that organization had wanted me to do some deployments to, they go, they go to Northern Iraq, Kurdistan area. Um, I couldn't do that obviously when I was active duty because they kind of frown upon you going by yourself to Iraq without <laughs> military support. So, uh, yeah, that was one of the first things I did is take off with them and, and do an assignment with them up in Kurdistan, which is we trained the Peshmerga military and um, the Kurds that support their military in advanced life support. So it was very rewarding and eye-opening to to interact with those people. Was that 2019? That was, yeah, October 2019. So I'm just trying to think time-wise. Was that just before the U.S. pullout then? Yes. So so how did that, how, how did that make you feel? Um, When they pulled out? Mm. That, I just, I mean... I think that we should probably have a presence in those areas. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I'm not, I'm not an expert in that, but you know, I don't know. It's, it's hard to say, but yeah, I think, I think we should still have some, some sort of presence and, and the people love us. They really do. Like the general, you can't watch the news and believe everything you hear and see. Right. Um, I know my interactions over there. They, they, love us they love training with us they respect us and they want us around um i'm speaking you know with the kurds especially so and i know when we pulled out in those areas they felt pretty betrayed so yeah, fair point <laughs> pretty 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 justified in feeling that way i'd say yeah exactly yeah, it fucking sucked. I never worked with the Kurds, but I've only ever heard good things about them. And like, I, you know, they bore they bore so much of the they bore the basically the brunt of the fight against ISIS. And then it's just like, cheers, bye. Like, wait, what? What? Yeah, it's yeah. fucking. It's heartbreaking. Exactly. And they're you know they they support us. We you know we were supporting them, and they truly believe like we'll be there. We'll have their back. And when you do that, yeah, it's pretty clear at this point that we've just acted in our own interests in that part of the world. Yeah. Um, because whenever, whenever it's been like, it's like, right. They're like, all oh, right, we helped you out now. Uh, now you're going to stick around. Yeah. It's like, yeah, nah, I think we'll be off now. We've, uh, right. We found the better. It's basically, it's like, we, f- we made the deal with someone else. We found the better deal as nations. We are f- fucking twats really <laughs> the way we behave. It's no wonder most of the world hates us. Yeah. Yeah. I- you know, it's like, cause I just, I mean, I was talking, you know, with, you know, Hamodi, we were talking earlier, um, Hamodi, the terrorist whisperer. He was saying the same thing about Iraq as like most Iraqi people. I, I'm sure you get the same. I get people messaging me on Instagram saying, come back to Iraq. I'm like, dude, it's not it's not up to me, but, I, you know, I fucking would. Yeah. I mean, they, you know, again, as you know, the, the people are 
the Kurds were amazing and they're so welcoming and, you know, they're just, they're people that just want to live their lives in peace. And like you say, they're caught, you know, surrounded by all these different areas that are not very peaceful. And, um, but yeah, they, they do. Mm -hmm. They love us. They, they were the most attentive students that I've ever taught. Um, which was really difficult because there was a language barrier, but they were all about it. I mean, they were there every morning. They were sitting at their desk waiting for us to talk, asking questions. I mean, it was just, it was great. And, you know, to this day, I still have friends from over there. So we hope to return. We were supposed to go back this year, but, you know, with everything going on, we weren't able to go back. Well, yeah, because we all know the coronavirus is far more deadly than ISIS. <laughs> <laughs> like what well, we're like hang on right we're gonna pause the war on terror while, while we deal with isis everyone put your face masks on and we'll deal with uh we'll deal with the terrorists that crucify people later yeah see this and this is this is one of my issues you know people who have never left this country don't understand really true oppression and you know they think that because america's in crisis or you know europe's in crisis everything else stops you know, our enemies are just going to like, oh, let's let's just go on pause till they get their shit together. You know, <laughs> and it's like, yeah. no, I mean, if you were fighting somebody, are you going to wait till they're completely healthy and good? Or are you going to kick them while they're down? You know, probably kick them while they're down. So, um, yeah, the world doesn't stop for us. <laughs> not, not just the world, but medical conditions, too. It's like, oh, I got uh, Corona's things. It's like, yeah, but dude, the fact that you're still a fat fuck is still way more dangerous for you than Corona. Like, it's like, no, no, obesity is not killing anyone at the moment. It's just corona. It's like, it doesn't work like that, fatty. Well, if you look at some of the hospital records, it's corona that's killing everyone, so. <laughs> yeah, coronavirus. Let's talk about, let's talk about fitness. Yeah. Because you're, you're into your fitness. You do some mad yoga, mad yoga shit <laughs> is the technical term. What, what's your kind of, what, what's your kind of like ethos towards fitness? What do you look for in fitness? What do you get out of it? How, and how do you practice it? I, so again, because my, the way my brain works is, is it challenging? Okay. Then I want to do it. Um, so I just look, that's the first thing I look for. Is it challenging? I I'm an all or nothing person. So if it's not something like, I have to have a goal to, to aim for. So if it's not something that interests right. me or challenging, then I'm going to be sitting on my couch eating ice cream. <laughs> so mm. I look for things that the goal is to eat all the ice cream. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I can do that very easily. Um, no, but the goal is is finding something that I like to wake up for every morning or, you know, look forward to doing. And so mm. yoga has always been challenging to me um, because I, I, I trend towards the power yoga, which is like a lot of arm balances and handstands and that type of thing that pretty difficult. Um, I was doing CrossFit for a long time, which every day there to me is a challenge. Every workout's a challenge. Um, yeah, if I'm not on my hands and knees crawling out of the place and I feel like I was a waste of time <laughs> <So>. <laughs> and I, I don't want it to be hours long. Like I just want to get it in, you know, do it, get it over with, crawl out of there, be in pain. You know, for me, my goals nowadays are just to be healthy and, um, aesthetics are good, but the main point is, is to keep moving, keep your body moving. I think that that goes with the longevity of, of people. My parents are 78 years old. They move all the time. They're walking or they're playing tennis. They're constantly doing stuff. And they are the mm. most energetic people I've ever met in my life. So 
you know, there's some, there's something to that, you know, don't stay stationary. <laughs> it's one of the things I worry about with lockdown is the people who are not, who are not sta- like, so like my grandma, she's like, what's she now, 95 or something? Now she's been locked down for months. It's going to be very hard for her to start moving again because she was like quite good on her feet. Yeah. But she'd go out every day and stuff. Um, and it, because like she's, you know, in the 90s, it's hard for people to get moving again if you're in your 20s and you've stopped for a few months. Like once you're out of childhood and you get out of the habit, it's fucking hard, you know. So, but like you said, it doesn't need to be coming out and crawling out on your hands and knees, but just doing something to move every day, I think is so important for your, for your mental health as well as your physical health. It absolutely is. And like, I kind of fell into a little funk this year with, with the whole quarantine, like everybody else. And I found myself not working out and I was staying up all night long because my brain wouldn't turn off because part of that working out for me was, you know, to exhaust myself to the point when mm. bedtime came, I would go to sleep and that wasn't happening. So I was up all night and then I was sleeping in till 10, 11, 12 o'clock in a day. And then my day was gone and it, it just became this, like, what am I doing here? What is my purpose in life? <laughs> and mm. so I finally, I just started a couple months ago. I, I have a spin place near me and they finally opened up and I was like, you know what? I'm going to start waking up early and going to this class, which I'm not a morning workout person, but just that simple change in my routine has really gotten me back on track, you know, with my fitness and my mental health. I really start, you know, I'm starting to come out of that cloud that I was in, that funk I was in and just feeling good about myself again. So yeah, I mean, it's, and it, I trust me, I had to force myself to get out. I have to force myself every day to get out of bed and go, but <laughs> I do, I feel amazing afterwards. And it's just a little bit, you know, just doing that, just get up, put one foot in front of the other and, and just do it, show up. Well, it's good to get that win in the belt, isn't it? At the beginning of the day. Yeah, it, it is because it really, it just sets off my day. I started it early. I come home. I still have my whole day ahead of me to get some work done or whatever I need to do. And by night I'm tired because I got up early to work out and it's, it's, it's put me back on track in that routine that I think my body and my mind craves. So yeah. I was going to say, do you do meditation practice or anything like that? I try. <laughs> it is, meditation is <laughs> really hard. <laughs> oh yeah it's fucking tough it it really is it it really requires a lot of concentration and you know having a quiet area um it it takes it's practice and again my mind is that type of mind that's just going 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 it's hard for me to read a book these days because i'll be reading a page and then find myself thinking about something else and have no idea what i just read (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> unless his brother's announced by garen jones in which case you can't tear your eyes away from the page yes obviously <laughs> obviously <laughs> uh yeah so meditation requires that stillness and quietness and being able to to shut everything off and be in the moment but that's kind of what you're doing with crossfit though well yeah crossfit is is like that um but you're active you're moving where meditation, you know, it's still like I have the hardest time sitting still <laughs> for anything. So it, it's it's a skill, <clears throat> I think. Um, I don't really meditate that much anymore now, but I I try and find other ways of doing it. Like basically, going for a walk without you know going for a walk and 
not like like basically going for a walk and concentrating on the walk if you know what i mean so like concentrating on looking at the vegetation and and that kind of thing focusing in on something rather than trying to have like an empty mind because maybe i could reach that point one day maybe we all could but we need to start with something that's just like and maybe starting starting by thinking about five things instead of 50 is a good start right you know it's just trying to you can't we're not we're not overnight going to go from being like monkey mind to that mind going all over the place in different different directions to finding absolute stillness in our mind. It's just not going to happen. You know, we have to do these these things, you know, kind of one at a time. And I think people can get very frustrated by trying to go to, you know, because it's because it involves closing your eyes. I think people think that they should be able to do it perfectly the first time and then they don't. They get frustrated with them. Yeah, it's I mean, and there are some apps that are pretty good to help you with that and like kind of talk to you and talk you through it. Um, which is not a bad place to start. If you're, you're looking into that meditation, mm-hmm. uh, there's one, I think it's called calm that I, I've had on my phone forever and I just, you know, don't mm. use it. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I, That's I, like, I, me with me with language. Yeah, I've tried it a couple of times and, and it does like, if you, you know, you play it and then there's a calming voice that's telling you to relax and whatever. And it, it works pretty well. So I was thinking about like doing an app like that. That's then like trying to like, basically someone's would be good like, to get like a meditation app and then, but have it as like one of those hypno hypnotherapy ones. And then as people are under, you get them to enter their credit card details and stuff. You could do that. I reckon there might be a little bit of money in that. If anyone has a cousin in Nigeria who wants to make some money, that's the way to do it. Um, <laughs> I just want to talk a bit before we wrap. Speaking of Nigeria, who's making money off? Of <laughs> I just want to put a plug in for the fake profiles. Yeah, well, do, you, do you have you had it? Well, actually, you know what? That kind of ties in what we we're going to say because I wanted to talk to you about your social media because you've got big social media following. Um, have you? Do you get people? Do you get people using your stuff for catfishing? Oh my gosh, it's every day. I mean, it's there are probably thousands of fake profiles. Apparently, I'm on every dating site. I'm not really, <laughs> but. I have profiles on every dating site. I've had men, I have so many men message me thinking they've been in a relationship with me for months, sending money. One guy sent tens of thousands of dollars. (laughs) I'm like, God, someone's making a lot of money off of me. Oh yeah. But but you know what's annoying? When they find out it's because I've had the same. When they find out the real you, they don't offer you any money. I know. I'm like, oh, hang on. So let's get this straight. The catfish gets 10 grand off my images. What about me? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's some guy in Nigeria who's just making out. So, yeah. What's that like when you find that out? Does it make you laugh? Because it's kind of sad as well, isn't it, really? Well, I mean, I really feel bad. And and the target audience seems to be, like, the older generation who aren't as tech savvy, Mm -hmm. probably. Um, And, you know, there's these older men that are probably very lonely or whatever. And they genuinely think that they're having this relationship and it's, it's sad. I mean, they're really like, they're really let down when they realize I'm not talking to you. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, there was a New York times reporter that did a documentary on Netflix about this. And this lady fell into this and thought she was helping some military kid overseas mm. and, you know, showed up at the airport had a sign ready and like all this stuff and oh of course my didn't, God. Like, I didn't show up. Yeah. And what's interesting is some of the security guys or the, the information booth people at the airports were like, this happens a lot. Like people show oh. up with these signs and they're waiting for these guys to come home. They paid for their plane ticket and nobody shows up. And it's, it is sad. And you know, they, they interviewed these guys and they're like, yeah, you watch them just, 
crying and walk away just defeated. And the one lady that they had on the documentary ended up spending, I guess, her and her husband's life savings on this. She had a husband too? Oh, well, she got what she deserved then. Dirty skank. Well, but, but, well, no, no, it wasn't, it wasn't like that because she was this older lady and I think she was just really lonely. Like her and her husband, her husband was abusive. Um, and she found, you know, solace in talking to this, this young military kid. And it, it didn't sound like it was a romantic thing. It was just more of a, like, almost like a motherly son type of thing. And then she, you know, he's saying like, oh, I'm stuck overseas. And so she buys him the plane ticket. She's been sending him money. Um, he doesn't show up, obviously, and the husband finds out, ends up killing her, kills himself. Whoa! I, mean, I take it oh, back. Yeah. I'm so sorry I said dirty skank. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't deserve that. Yeah. No, no, no. It was just really sad. And like I said, they prey on these older people who are lonely mm. and, you know, don't have that companionship or that, that conversation, you know, because after time, you just stop talking. So... Um, yeah, so I, it just sounded more like it was like a motherly son relationship and, you know, she just, and what was really interesting is she did find out eventually that it wasn't him that she was talking to, that it was somebody from Nigeria or wherever. And she kept talking to him and, and then kept like, it became this, I guess she fell into a pattern and, you know, enjoyed talking to yeah. these people, <laughs> kept sending him money. And yeah, so that has been obviously freaked out and that was it so so yeah it, it ends in tragedy a lot it's really sad but, yeah and it's it's sad when instagram these platforms don't do anything about it no. so i got shut down once because i was reporting all these fake profiles well apparently they were reporting me back and instagram shut me down which made a lot of sense so yeah I've, I've been on both ends of it and it's you know it's it's fucking sad and stuff but like I, I just don't see any way of stopping it, how there's any way to, 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 to stop it happening. Unfortunately, you know, like we said earlier, it'd be great if the world was like a nice place, but there's plenty of fucking assholes out there right. who are going to take advantage of people, unfortunately. You know, scams have always been around, they always will be around, and we just happen to be... If, you, if you've got a decent social media following, you're probably getting scammed. Like, people are probably using your images to scam if you've got a decent social media profile. Or even if you haven't, even if you're just fucking smoking hot, you're probably getting your things used. Yeah, and I, but I feel like you're right. You're not going to be able to shut down all of these profiles because there's probably millions of them out there. But, you you know, they should be, I think, educating more. So, like, you know, they have banners all the time about mm. COVID banners, and I see all these other educational banners. Like, they should have banners for that. Because it's really, it's pretty obvious yeah. once you yeah, know like, what the fake profiles look like and and you know, the patterns that they have and they take on. So they could easily be throwing these educational things out and like, this is what to look for, and, you know, so-and-so. I still find it, it's amazing that people don't do things like, I don't know, video chat before you send tens of thousands of dollars to somebody. <laughs> like, but yeah, but what they do is they're sneaky on this because they'll be like, oh, I can't because I'm in Iraq or whatever yeah. they pretend they pretend to be deployed and they pretend that they can't they're fucking clever motherfuckers um but they are like they're sneaky shitbags and there's a special place in hell for them if however you are a catfish making thousands of dollars and you'd like to sponsor the podcast <laughs> please get in touch <laughs> and you can have as many pictures to use as you like ah mate have you got anything else to um to tell our, our great listeners before we uh before we wrap this up 
Um, oh, tell them a bit about Hunter Seven Foundation. Actually, let's just uh, let's. I wanted to to give them a shout out. So, Hunter Seven Foundation is a foundation that is doing research on the effects of the burn pits that we were all exposed to overseas. And mm. why should we all be concerned? Um, if you're a veteran, if you were overseas, and you know that lovely smell and black smoke that you woke up to every morning, uh, probably affected you in some way somehow. And Unfortunately, you know, it doesn't happen right away. Like trauma gets a lot of attention because when trauma happens, it's very in your face. You see it. But the things like you're exposed to overseas with the burn pits and the toxins can do damage on your body that show up later. So, you know, cancers. And that's and that's where, you know, the foundation started because Hunter 7 is actually the call sign of a master sergeant who was over there and ended up coming back with a really rare cancer. And they think, you know, suspect that is probably what he was exposed to. And we're seeing more and more of these people coming back with just really odd cancers that they shouldn't be getting at, you know, the ages that they're getting them. So um, Chelsea, who is the nurse and the main researcher um, and the founder of the foundation, she's started asking questions, started, you know, doing some research on it. And now she's been talking to senators and congressmen about getting some bills passed and and it's really raising raising the awareness and advocating for yourself. So when you go to a doctor and you have some weird symptoms, a lot of times, you know, especially if you're younger, they want to just send you home and like, oh, you're fine or whatever. Um, when it could be something that's that's a lot more serious. So just advocating for yourself and educating the doctors on what you've been exposed to and where, you know, for instance, colon cancers. Colon cancer is the screening doesn't even start till you're 50. That's that's the nationwide standard for U.S. Um, but we're seeing people with colon cancers in their 30s and their 20s, and it's odd. And the thing about colon cancer is it's highly curable if you find it early. If you get a colonoscopy and you find it, you know, in the polyp phase or whatever. But because they're not able to get the screening, the the colon cancer manifests. It becomes stage three, stage four, and at that point, it's very deadly. So, you know, we're seeing people dying from this when they easily could have been screened for it, you know, and and possibly taken care of early on and not have to deal with everything that they go through, chemo and then death and whatever else. So, yeah, because it seems like this is a similar kind of situation to the Agent Orange exposure and Gulf War syndrome, you know, these fucking the shit that you get exposed to because you know you just breathe it in this is what fucking pisses me off about governments oh where you, where you dirty underpants on your face to go to the grocery store now stand next to this f- f- fucking 15 years ago stand next to this pit and burn plastic with fucking petrol right. and stir it with a stick fucking bastards I'm just thinking because I've always thought like the dust as well like the amount of like we've literally just breathed in handfuls of dust continuously when you're in the back of the vehicles that can't have done us any good no no, yeah. not at all. And that's where, like, we're seeing people, like, they're coming back with lung cancer. I mean, Ron Schur, who just passed away a few months ago. That was so sad. A Medal of Honor recipient, lung cancer. He didn't smoke. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, unbelievable. So, yeah, it's it's just raising that awareness, first of all. But if you have symptoms or general, like, again, when you go to doctors and you're at a certain age group and you have these general symptoms, they just, they kind of want to just send you home and not look into it. So it's, it's you taking it upon yourself and saying, no, I want to, like, this is not right. I'm not feeling right. You know, look into it further, get your diagnostic test, that type of thing. So. 
Right, I'm issuing a general order to all listeners now. If you go to the doctors, you're not feeling well, do not take no for a fucking answer on that. Get your fucking... Insist on your checks, especially if you're in the UK and you've been paying in the NHS. Tell me you want your fucking checks. Yeah. Because uh, I know that we've, like, the same as, obviously, American troops, where you've been exposed to all kinds of fucking shit when you've been on tour. So put your foot down. Remember... Half of the doctors, as guest Charlie Bunting told us, half doctors, half of the doctors finished in the bottom half of their class, right? <laughs> yeah. So don't be put in. It's it's again. It comes down to like what we were saying at the beginning of the podcast. Um, just don't take no for an answer on some things. Like you, you, you got to take. It's your life. Take responsibility for it, and that means sometimes having uncomfortable conversations. And you know what? Maybe the doctor gives you a fucking shitty look, but better to have that than end up with fucking stage four cancer. So fuck them. Get, get what you deserve. Get what's owed to you. Right. I don't know how it is over there, but, you know, if you have a doctor who's not listening to you, find another one. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's going to be somebody that will, will listen to you, but just don't back down. This is your health. This is your life, you know. And I mean, if you're tired of living, fuck it. Go, <laughs> don't, don't go. Don't hold, you know, don't fucking, uh, don't, don't even waste your time going down there for the checkup. Uh, Nikki, thanks so much for coming on. Do you have any words of wisdom to leave the noble listeners with? Well, I mean, I guess just what we said, you know, don't take no for an answer, advocate for yourself. Um, When it comes to things and people saying no to you, just always get it in writing, look up the instructions, just know what you're talking about. And, and action over talking. Guys, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Nikki, thank you so much for coming along. I really enjoyed that talk. I definitely want to get Nikki on again soon because, um, we had time constraints and there's just so much more to talk about with her. Uh, please check out Nikki. Um, again, I'll tag her up in the show notes. Check out Hunter 7 Foundation um, for all the information on there about burn pits and so on and so forth. Thank you again to the Royal British Legion for making today's episode possible. And thank you also to our other sponsor, Geraint Jones. He's a legend of a bloke. You can check out his books on Amazon. Uh, if you want signed copies of anything that I've written, then get in touch with me, slide into my DMs at GRJ Books. Everything tagged up in the show notes. Let's support capitalism. Fuck communism. Uh, guys, catch you next time. Love you, bye. Yeah. Listen. Shout out Teaser. You told me not to worry and you wouldn't break my heart You told me you were sorry and my whole world fell apart You said it's not my fault and yeah I've never done you wrong I'm grinding to a halt now I can see you're moving on I promised I'd get better and I told you things would change You keep me to the gutter yeah I'll never be the same I've gotta let you go now live your life and spread your wings And yeah you put on quite a show and pulled the puppet strings And are you sure that you don't want me? Remember all the pain or maybe you should thank me It's your loss and my gain I'm leaving now forever I won't hang my head in shame, but yeah, you've taken me for granted, and you should feel ashamed. You sold a dream to all of us, a dream that we'd all die for, a reason for us all to live and something we could fight for. I might just help a man up to his feet or hold a newborn, but no matter what I do, my hands remembering my rifle, yeah. Life's hard, I know that. Still wouldn't change shit. I wouldn't go back, yeah, I wouldn't go back. Feelings I hold back. Memories fade, yeah, they go fast, yeah, they go fast Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I suppose Good times to come and go, survive the highs and lows Just take it step by step, I guess, yeah, I